0: Section 16 of Mimic Live. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Kelly Taylor. The Prompter's Daughter by Anna Cora Mollett. Chapter 7 Five months had elapsed since the night of the appalling catastrophe Tina had not regained her former elastic vigor, but she persuaded herself and her parents that she was restored to health. Had her constitution been strengthened during these first seven years of her life by a close obedience to physical laws, the recuperative powers inherent in childhood might have effected a thorough restoration. It now became evident that that the high cultivation of her precocious mind had sapped the springs of vitality. Her so-called recovery was simply toe-healing of the burns. The return facility of locomotion, not the ruddy glow, the bounding pulse, the functional activity of positive health. Christmas was approaching. The usual pantomime which celebrates Christmas festivities was in preparation one character mr tuttle found difficult to cast that of fairy queen whose duty it was to transform the young lovers for certain disobedient conduct into the customary columbine and harlequin and metamorph those crabbed fathers into clown and pantaloon the fairy was only required to exhibit herself at intervals during the pantomime and pronounce a few doggerel lines as she dispensed her favors or dealt out retributive justice. The role was one technically called a light part, but demanding judicious representation. Mr. Higgins became particularly anxious that this very queen might be personated by Tina. His audiences had fallen off of late. Her return to the stage would give new impetus to his flagging business, she would be an especial attraction to merry juveniles who thronged his boxes during the holiday season. Mr. Higgins himself called at the lodgings of the True Hearts and made the proposition to the child. He at once declared herself quite able to resume her duties. The manager left the house exulting. The fairy queen first appeared surrounded by her attendants, coral branch, dewdrop, rose lips cowslip twinkle star rainbow susan was cast as coral branch she would have the felicity of standing on the stage beside her child a privilege rendered doubly dear by long privation tina had not yet entered the theatre since the night of the accident yet she betrayed no emotion at the first rehearsal of the pantomime perhaps she was too feeble to be subject to excitement or it might be the love of her art returned with a strong tide that swept away painful recollections she always experienced a deep internal satisfaction when the gifts with which she was endowed were brought into use she was welcomed joyfully by the whole company coldness indifference professional jealousy all melted away in the general sympathy awakened by her sufferings. Her presence seemed to spread gladness wherever she passed. Dressers, basket carriers, all left their employments to throng around her and rejoice over her return. Boxing night, as it is termed, arrived. It is the night succeeding Christmas. The first on which the theater is opened after it's close for a fortnight or three weeks during the preparation of the pantomime on christmas eve and on christmas night there is no performance in any theater in england a rule not observed in america according to the old established usage, some gloomy terror inspiring tragedy always precedes the pantomime george barnwell jane shore bertram douglas venice preserved are greatly in vogue on these occasions but although the tragedy is expected nay required by the audience and faithfully represented by the actors do not one single sentence do the occupants of the pit gallery or boxes ever listen the two former keep up a continual uproar which would not be tolerated on any other night Sometimes humorous conversations are shouted out between the individuals aloft and their acquaintances below. No attempt is ever made to prevent this violation of decorum. It is one of the traditional licenses of boxing night. The tumult continues until the pantomime commences, and then, strange to say, a dead silence, only broken by occasional peals of laughter, reigns through the theater. Silence while the performance on stage is principally in dumb show, a deafening clamor while the tragic actors are straining their lungs to render audible their wrongs, miseries, and heroic resolves. Once more, Susan arrayed her child in the glittering apparel of the stage. Many and many a time did she kiss those poor little feet, now covered with purple scars, before she drew on the silken stockinette and tied the silver slippers. But when she tried to fasten the transparent wings on the child's shoulders, an icy bolt shot through her heart, and she thought of those aerial wings that had turned to wings of flame. Her trembling hands wholly refused to perform their office. She turned away her blanched face and silently motioned to the dresser to secure the fairy appendages. When she was equipped, Tina stole to her father's side, and attracted his attention by gently touching him with her silver wand. As he dropped his book to take her for a moment in his arms, a deep shadow passed over his face, and he looked upwards as though internally praying for strength to bear some impending affliction. The theater was densely crowded. The tragedy was over. The pantomime commenced. In the second scene, the fairy queen is discovered in a crystal bower, "'surrounded by her nymphs. "'Tina's appearance was a signal "'for a perfect hurricane of acclamations. "'While she curtsied in acknowledgment, "'Susan, who was standing beside her as coral branch, "'could not help glancing at the round, rosy, laughing faces "'that clustered in the boxes, "'and contrasted them with the pallid, wasted child, "'who received the juvenile greeting "'with a languid inclination and faint smile.' this prolonged clapping of the little dimpled hands, this rapturous welcome, was all in honor of Susan's precious one, and yet it struck upon the mother's ears with a sound of mockery. Her heart sank as it had never sunk before. When the boisterous greeting was over, the pantomime continued. Tina's role was not one that displayed her dramatic abilities— yet the audience was predetermined to be delighted with her most trifling efforts. Her step had lost its springiness, her movements were undulating but nerveless, her voice was low and tremulous, its clear ringing tone had quite gone, yet all these losses seemed to have no effect upon her popularity. There was a great deal of laughter elicited by Matthew's humorous clown. Hot codlins, as usual, excited the riotous mirth of the pit. Pantaloon was duly buffeted and bullied. The stereotyped traditional jokes played off upon him created as much amusement as though they had not been repeated every Christmas since the grandfathers and grandmothers present were chubby urchins themselves. Columbine and Harlequin and Sprite danced through the scenes at unanticipated moments and there was a liberal expenditure of blue and red fire at the grand finale when the fairy queen ascended in a gilded car accidents had been carefully guarded against everything passed off smoothly Bettina was thoroughly exhausted by her light exertions unable to walk she was carried home in her father's arms and remained for a long time in a state of semi-consciousness. After the first night's performance, a pantomime is not rehearsed again. This was fortunate for Tina. She lay almost motionless the whole of the next day, with wan cheeks and lustreless eyes that bespoke her utter prostration. Yet, as the evening drew near, she roused herself with a strong effort and rose cheerfully, and said she was better and ready to go to the theatre. "'Are you able, my darling?' asked her mother, sadly. "'I must be able, mother dear, for they have no substitute, and the pantomime can't go on without the Fairy Queen.' The little girl went through her part, with minute carefulness, but her actions were all mechanical, and bore little resemblance to her former fresh and spirited delineations.' Her fatigue was not so great as on the previous evening, to use a theatrical expression; she was getting back into the traces. The pantomime ran thirty nights, and every night the heroic child conquered her languor and went through her duties without a murmur. But she faded visibly. Her attenuated form seemed the lightest, most transparent fleshly temple that could enshrine an immortal soul. The pantomime was announced for the last time. Tina found herself scarcely able to totter through the first scene. She struggled, struggled desperately. The words died away unuttered on her parched and powerless lips. Then she smiled mournfully and shook her head. Those who were acting with her comprehended the signal. They no longer waited for their cues, but spoke when she was unable to proceed. Mr. Gildersleeve, stood watching her at the wing from her earliest infancy she had entwined herself closely about his honest heart he now left his post and hurried to the back of the stage behind the scenes there stood the bed used for juliet's chamber with thoughtful kindness he took the small mattress and carried it to the old property room as tina staggered from the stage into her mother's arms the good man lifted her up gently and carried her to the couch he had prepared. And there she lay, in that same property room, where, nearly seven years ago, she had lain as an unconscious infant, about to be launched into a life of weariness and toil, which seemed her heritage. There, in the selfsame corner, stood the old cradle, somewhat hacked and scratched, in which she had been placed as Dot's baby. And there was the young mother, kneeling beside her, even as she had knelt upon that memorable night. And now, as then, hopes and fears were struggling for mastery in that fond maternal heart. But hopes seemed then victorious. Fears now had gained the vantage ground. "'You cannot finish the part, my child. "'It is impossible,' said Susan. "'I must try, mother. "'I must try. "'It is only to-night.' "'and this will be the last night of the pantomime, the last night of...' She saw her mother's look of anguish and did not finish the sentence. Restoratives were administered, and the child gradually revived. One after another, the members of the company stole in to catch a glimpse of the general favorite. She spoke to them in turn, but in such a strange, solemn manner, that some thought her mind was wandering.' and to every one she bade a last tender farewell even mr higgins made his way to the property room come little music shell we shall get you well again before long we shall have to put another little girl into prince arthur to-morrow night and she can't hold a candle to you but your father says it's not possible for you to attempt the part what do you think how could mr higgins have asked that question of the almost lifeless child. The dominant passion was never silent. The voice of interest was stronger within his breast than the pleadings of humanity. He would have encouraged the public's darling to make the mad attempt for his benefit at the obvious risk of her very life. I fear not, sir. I wish I could get through it, but I fear I shall never act again. "'Nonsense, nonsense. Don't talk so. "'You're only a little low-spirited and worn out. "'We'll soon have you as bright as a button, "'stirring up people until they almost drive "'the old roof off the house with their clapping. "'Never fear. We'll soon set you to right. "'But if not, if... "'If I am going away as I think I am, "'if I never see you again, "'don't forget what I now beg.' Be kind to my poor father, my dear mother. They will miss me so much. Miss you? We should all miss you, the sweetest music-shell, and the noblest Roman of all. But we're not going to miss you. We won't consent to anything of the kind. We must all consent to the will of God," replied Tina, in a tone so full of grave humility. "'that even this ungodly man could not frame a reply. "'There was something shining in his hard eyes as he gazed at her. "'It could scarcely be called a tear, "'but it was the first moisture those eyes had known for years. "'The call-boy stood at the door. "'Fairy Queen called!' "'Tina rose with difficulty, "'and Susan, who seemed too much exhausted herself to remonstrate "'in Mr. Higgins' presence,' readjusted the light wings, and smoothed the spangled dress. Mr. Higgins, wonderful condescension on his part, took the child's hand and led her to the wing. How she went through the scenes that remained was a matter of wonder to herself. Strength seemed imparted according to her need, and she resolutely roused herself to make one last effort. The pantomime was over, "'Tina's stage-clothes had been thrown aside for the last time. "'She was at home again, and Dr. Weldon standing beside her couch. "'It may be a temporary exhaustion. "'She may revive,' were his comforting words to her parents. "'Robin knew better. Susan knew better. "'But neither gave voice to their fears. "'The next morning it appeared as though the doctor might be right, "'for she rallied wonderfully.' yet robin was not deceived the play that night was king john and the poor prompter with his thoughts full of his dying child was forced to prompt a play replete with passages that rent his soul every word uttered by the new prince arthur brought back tina's tones her looks her pretty actions the burst of applause that they had evoked robin could hardly keep his seat but when queen constance broke forth in her frantic lamentation grief fills up the room of my absent child lies in his bed walks up and down with me puts on his pretty looks repeats his words remembers me all of his gracious parts stuffs out his vacant garments with his form then i have reason to be fond of grief the wretched prompter dropped his head upon the books and wept uncontrollably when that book was used long years afterwards saw those blistered pages divined with what tears they had been scalded on his return home he found tina and her mother lying side by side talking cheerfully it was so pleasant to have a night of rest away from the exciting sights and sounds that appertain to a theatre. Robin stooped down to receive their united caresses, and for a moment he forgot the menacing clouds about to burst on his head. Henry the Eighth was the tragedy selected for the ensuing night. Susan was cast as Patience, the attendant of Queen Catherine. In Act Third, patience sings to the queen when her soul grows sad with troubles, and in Act Fourth she sings the hymn which precedes Queen Catherine's death—a hymn introduced on the stage, though, according to the Shakespearean text, solemn music is played and a sort of spirit dance mutely enacted. The character of patience. Was not of sufficient consequence for Miss Mellon to be persuaded to undertake its personation, and there was no one else in the theatre but Susan to whom the music could be entrusted. And she must leave her child, the child whose earthly hours she feared would be so few, to appear upon the stage, to sing. Never had inexorable duty made a harder requirement. There was no appeal from its stern demands. She prepared to depart. Instead of dressing at the theater, according to her usual custom, she hurriedly arrayed herself at home. No mirror reflected her form as she donned the flowing white robe and graceful drapery suited to the queen's handmaiden. She stood at the foot of the little bed, gazing upon the child, while her unsteady fingers fastened the bands clasp the girdle, and loop the long pendant sleeves. Miss Armory entered while the task was nearly completed. With instinctive kindness, she offered to assist Susan, and the latter did not refuse her service. It was a singular sight. The young Sunday school teacher, who regarded a theater with horror, helping to attire the actress for her part, singular, but in thy angelic light, heaven-born charity, how beautiful. I shall be back soon, though it will seem long, said Susan, pressing her feverish lips to her child's chilly brow. Go, mother. Miss Lucy will stay with me. Go, dear mother, and don't think of me any more than you can help. Susan opened the door, but twice returned for one more parting kiss, then tore herself away, an actress of high distinction personated Queen Catherine. The Queen's death is one of the most touchingly eloquent scenes upon the stage. Who cannot picture to themselves Susan's emotion as she sang to Handel's solemn, awe-inspiring music the words, Angels, ever bright and fair, Take, oh take her to your care, Speed to your own courts her flight, "'clad in robes of virgin white. "'Queen Catherine wakes at the close of the strain, exclaiming, "'Spirits of peace, where are ye? "'Are ye all gone? "'And leave me here in wretchedness behind ye? "'Saw ye not, even now, a blessed troop "'invite me to a banquet, "'whose bright faces cast a thousand beams "'upon me like the sun? "'They promise me eternal happiness.' and brought me garlands, griffith, which I feel I am not worthy yet to bear, I shall, assuredly. Queen Catherine dies. Her death takes place in the fourth act of the play, and patience appears no more. Susan neither waited for an escort, nor to change her dress, but wrapping herself in a mantle, hastily bade Rodman adieu, and ran home as swiftly as her strength permitted. There was a fifth act and a short afterpiece, and Robin could not leave until these were over. As Susan entered the room, Miss Armory took leave. Her carriage had been waiting some time. Tina's eyes shone with supernatural light as they rested on her mother. "'Ah, mother, you are back. I see you again. Will you not leave me any more? It seems so long, and I am so cold.' Sometimes the rooms goes dark, and then it is suddenly lighted up. I wanted you, my mother, wanted to see you once more. Will father be here soon?" The words were gasped out with difficulty, for her breath came rapidly and unevenly. Oh, my child, my child! Don't weep, mother. You know it must be. Don't weep, or perhaps in that other world I shall think of your tears and not rejoice enough that the Lord has called me. Mother, that heavenly world! All day I have been seeing in my mind those lovely Kew Gardens, the most beautiful sight I ever saw. And that world must be even more beautiful. And you will meet me there, Mother. Oh, I trust so. Soon, very soon. And in time your father will come too. Susan, had ceased to weep. Now I love to see you, Mother. You are so calm, so like yourself. The pain is all passing from me. My heart is so light. Mother, sing me the hymn you sang tonight to Queen Catherine before she died. Susan's voice was firmer and clearer than it had been on stage as she sang to her dying child. Angels, ever bright and fair, take O, oh, take her to your care. Speed her to your courts her flight, clad in robes of virgin white. A portion of the strain is repeated many times, And the music is majestically slow. When the last notes died away, Susan and her child both seemed wrapped in holy meditation, A species of heavenly trance, Which remained unbroken until Robin opened the door. Oh, Father, father, you are come, and Tina rose up and almost leaped into his extended arms. My mother, sing to me now once more, sing the hymn we all heard last Sabbath, and which we all love so well, and Father, you will sing to me too, will you not, Susan sang, and Robin's manly voice joined in, unfaltering, happy soul secure from harm guarded by thy shepherd's arm who thy quiet can molest who can violate thy rest jesus doth thy spirit bear far removed from anxious care shepherd with thy tenderest love guide me to thy fold above let me hear thy gentle voice more and more in thee rejoice from thy fullness grace receive ever in thy spirit live. Filled by thee my cup o'erflows, for thy love no limit knows. Guardian angels, ever nigh, lead and draw my soul on high. Constant to my latest end, thou my footsteps wilt attend. Jesus, with thy presence blest death is life and labor rest. Guide me while I draw my breath, guard me through the gate of death and at last oh may i stand with thy sheep at thy right hand while they still sang a change passed o'er the child's countenance paler it could not grow but its pallor became transparent the limbs quivered slightly and then were extended to their utmost length the eyes opened wide as though they saw something invisible to others. She smiled serifically, and then her features gradually assumed a marvel-like rigidity. There was a gurgling, rattling sound in her throat, which the music did not wholly drown. The hands clasped upon her bosom, slowly relaxed. All was very still. Father and mother saw all, heard all. But they sang on. They feared to disturb the parting spirit by a word of anguish, a rebellious look. They sang on, and neither wept. The hymn ended. They knew that the angel of death had borne away their child before its close. Susan fell upon her husband's breast and was folded to his heart in one long embrace. She then calmly turned to the child and kissed the icy lips many times. And motioned Robin to do the same. They stood side by side, gazing on the angelic countenance, but it was not until kind Mrs Gildersleeve entered the room that either of them found utterance. Then Susan closed the gazing eyes, bound up the falling chin, and, in spite of Mrs Gildersleeve's remonstrances, insisted on performing the last offices. She had not once thought of herself, or even cast aside her stage attire. She robed the pure limbs in white vestiture, smoothed the bright hair for the last time, wound its soft rings around her fingers, folded the tiny, transparent hands upon the cold breast, fastened them together with a white ribbon. But when all was over, when there was no more that could be done for her child, Her unnatural strength gave way with a sudden shock, and she was seized with violent convulsions. I knew it, oh, I knew it. Thou hast taken thy flight, my birdie, and she shall follow thee, groaned Robin, as he gently chafed the clenched hands. The convulsion lasted several hours, and when they ceased, the seal of death was on her dewy brow. She faintly returned the clasp of Robin's hand. How hard, how hard for you, she said. You will be desolate, for I am going to. Going to be with her, going to our child, going to receive the rich reward of all your gentle goodness. No, no, I will not. I do not wish it to be otherwise. Do not think of me. It is wise so, best so. You will suffer no more, will labor no more. You will be happy, I am content. I yield you up, my wife, my heart's love, as I did her. I bless the Lord for the strength he gives me to yield up both my life's sole treasures to his will. Susan could not reply. Again, a convulsive spasm distorted her features. The struggle was short but violent. When it ceased, her face was calm as that of the child which appeared to be slumbering on its own little bed her limbs as composed her frame as pulseless mother and child were reunited for thee poor hunchbacked Proctor, with thy great upright soul not bowed to the earth but lifted heavenward by thy mighty sorrows go on thy way unmurmuring toil suffer struggle Plod through thy thankless duties day by day, night by night. Let the bigot revile thy calling, the self-righteous pass on by the other side. The ignorant stigmatize thee. What matters it? Thou hast taken up thy cross and borne it manfully. Thine was the true heroism of self renunciation Thine the heaven-descended love that preferred the joy of those beloved to thine own, that willingly accepted misery as the purchase of their felicity. Thine will be the crown of glory, worn in eternal youth, when thy deforming hump shall be shaken off with thy mortal coil. The Lord hath taken all from thee, but to pay thee back a thousandfold. God bless all our gains we say but god bless all our losses better suits with our degree end of the prompter's daughter